we all lose strength as we age and past 30 years of age, where we lose strength the most is the calf. So the plantar flexors take the biggest hits. This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. Our guest today, Brad Beer, is known for his expertise in treating running and triathlon-related injuries. As a physiotherapist with over 15 years' experience, Brad is not only just a physiotherapist, but he's an exercise scientist and has worked with a wide range of high-level athletes and national programs. He's passionate about outputting helpful content for runners. He's also the host of his own podcast, The Physical Performance Show, which really aims at educating athletes, which of course we love. And by way of sporting background, Brad was a junior elite triathlete himself, has collected multiple podium and championship wins at an age group level. And Dad, our goal on this podcast is every episode, we want, we want to give you, the listener, something that you can implement into your training that is going to help you directly. And we do our best to really press some of our guests uh, sometimes with directly applicable questions that can be tough to answer. Um, but Bat Brad, being a podcast guest host himself, Today was great in providing educated answers that are really important for athletes to know about injury. And I guess from our point of view, we want listeners and we want athletes out there to really start taking it upon themselves to educate themselves more about their bodies, about their injuries. And I don't think it's good enough anymore as an athlete to leave it all to the practitioner, leave it all to the physio or the osteo or to, to your um, sports doctor, sports physician um, to, to do everything for you. You need to be as well educated as possible that when you get a niggle or you get an injury, how are you going to treat it? What information do you need to know? What what do you need to learn to help prevent this in the future um, and get yourself back stronger? And so that is what this episode was filled with. And I think if you can really listen to and pay attention to these things, you're arming yourself with good knowledge to help you get through your training and actually get to race day uh, in the best shape possible to perform. Yeah, Brad was uh, excellent um, in in doing exactly what you've just um, summarised there. Um, we really want to have experts on our podcast that are that are going to give useful information, and we're not just not just getting people on just for the sake of it. We're getting people on for a reason. We want them to we want to get experts in the field, and injury is one of the the biggest issues in sport in any sport in the world so at some point or another you are going to face some sort of injury whether it's your own fault or whether it's um, outside your control you are going to be on the sidelines and and we all love sport we all love playing sport we've got a passion about it and that's why you're listening to this podcast because you want to get some more information that's going to help you become a better athlete and and so having someone like brad who's actually an experienced triathlete himself and is you know I love people who can talk the talk but they've also walked the walk so his his knowledge as an athlete and he's had plenty of injuries himself he talked about um, he's had bone stress injuries and and really that's probably got him more motivated to prevent that from happening and to find out what things he should be doing to prevent that and this is what we're trying to get uh, the experts on on this particular podcast and Brad is a really high level expert in his field in understanding uh, what creates injuries what is best to do about the injuries and how quickly you can get back into your sport. And and the last point on that is to to prevent it from reoccurring is one of the things that I'm really um, a really big pusher of. Is you know 
and only because I've made that mistake myself. You know, and Brad really highlights this is you can take control of your injury. Sure, we're all going to get injured, but but letting it reoccur is like, you know, training the same way and expecting yourself to improve. So uh, doing the same activities without strengthening the, the injury area that's weak is going to cause the injury to reoccur. And if you don't take it upon yourself to get the advice and do the rehab, then you will be facing the same injury repeatedly, which is what I have done which has prevented me from running um, since, you know, the early 90s. Um, and my lack of understanding of the rehab process in the 90s was ev- evident. And this is what Brad's so good at is is really giving simple exercises that can keep you on the park. And and I really enjoyed this episode. So we finished off this year with a lot of injury-based podcast episodes, but that is because we are so passionate about getting this education across to you. And uh, it's just honestly one of the most underspoken but biggest limiters uh, for age group athletes is getting to the start line fit and healthy. And and we put so much effort into into training and the one percenters and nutrition and all these other things. Yet um, we neglect some information sometimes about injury, and it and it stops people from enjoying their race day. And, and you're in a position where you're two weeks out, or four weeks out, or six weeks out from your race, and you have an injury, and it it ruins your whole experience. It ruins all the hard work you've done. It ruins the fact that you've paid entry, you've paid massive entry for some of these races. You've paid airfares, you've paid accommodation, and so. Getting to that point without a disaster happening uh, is absolutely key. And um, in this episode, you can look forward to, uh, we talked really specifically about lower leg strength, lower, lower leg exercises that you can do, which will be golden for your improvement and strength and injury prevention uh, all around that, that uh, infamous calf muscle, what you should be doing weekly to uh, give yourself the best chance of staying injury-free. But not only that, performing better. We talk about cycling uh, and swimming injuries specifically. But what I really liked from Brad was talking about the risk grade and risk factor of injuries and where you can afford to push a little bit and take a little bit of risk as an age grouper and where you need to absolutely back off and you should take no risk because that injury has a high chance of of being a long-term injury. So, lots to look forward to in this episode. We hope you enjoy it. Here is the episode with Brad. Brad Beer, a fellow podcaster in the triathlon space, a very big welcome to the show. We're grateful to have you on. Jordy and Jared, thanks so much for um, yeah, for the invitation. Big fans of what, what you both do with uh, Trivelo. I have some patients that are coached through uh, Trivelo and they, as I said off here, they all rave about uh, the experience. So yeah, it's a pleasure. Appreciate it. We'll dive straight in and we want to know straight away, there's a few aspects to you that we want to talk about. Uh, but the main thing is uh, your main line of work is is physiotherapy and helping endurance athletes and triathletes uh, return to form as safely and as smartly as possible. Um, but we want to know straight off the bat, what does physiotherapy mean to you? To me, it means returning people, like you just said, Geordie, back to their physical best, whatever that looks like. So everyone has different physical endeavors and goals and ambitions. Um, and there's no, no goal more important than the other, whether it's elite sport or recreational sport or, or um, you know, anything in between. So, yeah, it's a real thrill. I've never lost the joy of being a physio in 16 years. Anyone that walks through the door, I try and give the very best to. It's just such a pleasure to see them. We call it the physio finish line through the clinic at Pogo. And we want everyone to get there. Everyone deserves a, an end to rehabilitation and it should be a guarantee. Well, on that, has there been many people that, that you've just scratched your head and gone, I actually don't know how to help help you anymore. We've gone to the end of the line. And I'm thinking almost a little bit selfishly here because 
I've always loved running and I just can't run. And have you had many people in that situation? Yeah, it's a good question, Jared. Um, you do see, I mean, they, you know, some cases can be what we sort of refer to as like clinical conundrums. Like they are, you know, there's a few layers and they, some people may have been bounced around between practitioners. And But I always approach it that they're, they're ha- Step one should be an accurate diagnosis. And, and normally, Jared, if people are experiencing persisting or persistent pain or dysfunction or limitation functionally to what they want to do, whether it's running or whatever it may be, I've observed over the 16 years, there's often a failure to um, have been accurately diagnosed or they've been underloaded with rehab. Like they're the, they're the, the two main reasons I see people um, that get stuck with conditions. Um, and you know, it's a classic case is someone that's been treated for a tendinopathy, say, and it's not a tendon, like in the Achilles tendon region, there can be nine different, different conditions or nine differential diagnoses and no one means to miss things, but someone at the onset has just missed it. And they've been treating it like a tendon when it's a, a tendon sheath or a posterior ankle impingement, for example. So, so everyone should be able to absolutely get to where they want to get to. Um, there's certain times when people's expectations may need to downregulate. So you might have someone cycling through bone stress injuries and they may have to a- adjust their behaviors to accept that they have to do less intense running or less volume work bone workload um, to reduce their risk. But yeah, I, I fundamentally believe everyone should be able to get to where they want to get to. Happy to talk off air too, Jared, and see if we can help you, mate. <laughs> Oh, that would be gold. Um, just just following on from that. Um, so the expectation is really about um, being prepared to do the work and giving yourself sufficient time. And and one of the things that we come across a lot of the time is, but my race, Jared, is in six weeks' time or, or 10 weeks' time or four weeks' time. And that's one of the things that I suppose you have to deal with in giving people reality checks. Is that that a common thing you have to, the time factor that people are trying to rush towards and not giving the injury the appropriate rehab and the time that it should have? Yeah, spot on, Jared, you're spot on. It's, you know, you can't accelerate biology. Like there might be little hacks and tricks and things that you can do to potentially speed up some tissue healing. Like someone's got a bone injury, then if they aggressively deload it and maybe go on crutches for a week or two, maybe that helps to settle it down a bit quicker. But in general terms, you know, you can't accelerate that tissue healing and and it can be hard for athletes and I understand why to sometimes accept that. But it's the job of a practitioner working with the athlete to help them readjust their expectations and they make the decision at the end of whether they want to put the foot on the start line knowing that they're going to have to accept that they're 50% run fit or, you know, whatever it may be. So I think it comes back to clear communication, realistic expectations and um yeah and doing the work and it's a journey it's it's not easy but knowing knowing an end date is key so it's always nice to know when athletes events are and you can try and you know um reverse engineer to make sure they're ready but there's times when they're just going to have to accept that they're not going to be either at their best or it's better to not put a foot on the start line at all i just want to follow up from what you were saying and doesn't we'll work out when we re-edit it where where we stop and start that one so so the next question following on from what you've just said is have you had many athletes that in your opinion shouldn't actually start the race but because they're motivated and and they'll tell you 
that I've paid for accommodation, it's it's airfares and and I'll just go and do the race anyway and and in your opinion that could actually do more damage to them to their injury and possibly be really chronically long term. Have you had to have those tough conversations where you're saying, Hey listen, this is not a good idea, but at the end of the day, you can't really make that decision for them, can you? Yeah, exactly right. Um, it's a it's a shared decision making process, but at the end of the day, the athlete or the patient, you know, in, in healthcare makes the decision. Um, but it's the job of the practitioner to outline risks and um, and and help them make a hopefully a wise decision. And yes, to to directly answer that, Jared, um, the instances where those conversations are needed are around like for example, high-risk bone stress injuries. So the soft tissue stuff like your, your sore shoulders, your tendinopathies in your shoulders or your joint-related stuff like kneecap pain or um, gluteal tendon, you know, the side of the hip gets aggravated, the hamstring tendon, Achilles tendon. These things, the worst that someone can do is flare themselves right up. So they can't typically do any ongoing damage to themselves other than having experiencing quite a marked flare. So... So there's a bit more wriggle room with soft tissues, but there's no wriggle room at all with with some types of bone stress injuries because they they're categorised into high risk, you know, medium risk and low risk. So um, you know some of the high risk sites, as you, you both would know, are things like the femoral neck. Um, if someone's got a femoral neck bone stress injury, they should not run or hop a single step more um, because there's real um, threat and risk to their their bones integrity and you don't want to split that and end up with a pin in it it's the same thing for the front of the shin the anterior shin um and uh a bone for example in the foot like the navicular so there are some really high risk bone stress injuries so there you know that they need deloading aggressively and quickly and um so yeah absolutely those conversations are necessary at times so we we're big uh, advocates of the eighty twenty principle, um, just applied generally. Not talking specifically about polarized training or anything like that. But uh, most of the time, we just see twenty percent of the same things, um, and that makes up eighty percent of of what you see. You know, and um, I'm really curious: does that apply to injuries for you? And are you generally seeing twenty um, percent of the injuries you're seeing cover eighty percent of patients? And if so, what kind of areas are you are you finding you spend the most time on with endurance athletes? Yeah, it's a good question, Geordie. Definitely, um, you, you know, uh, the common injuries, the difference is individuals are different. They've got different goals. They've got different training backgrounds. They've got different risk factors. Uh, but, yeah, if you work in endurance sports with as a, as a, as a physiotherapist, you, you tend to deal with bone injuries, so bone stress injuries like, you know, we just touched on, um, whether that's the pelvis, the femur, the tibia, the foot, um, or – Tendon-related injuries, so typically your Achilles tendon conditions, your proximal hamstring or upper hamstring conditions, um, and uh, and then you've got your joint-related concerns. So you've got your you know your runner's knee, your your kneecap pain, um, hip pain, and of course you know some back pain stuff as well. So yeah, you, you do see an overlap with the conditions, but it's never boring. And just like coaching an athlete, it's it's always individualized. So it's always you know, making sure decisions are made around their circumstances, even though it might be the same injury that the, the last patient or athlete had that walked through the door. 
and some of, some of those common injuries, um, and I'm talking more the tendons or soft tissue injuries rather than the bone injuries. Um, if someone's continually presenting, um, recurring the same injury, is your is your method to say, hang on, let's just stop stop and try to to rebuild that a little bit better, stronger, so that it's got more resilience, rather than just the band aid of you know people think because it's not hurting that I don't have to do that rehab work, and that that's one of the conversations I seem to be having a lot of the time is just because the injury is actually not hurting anymore, you don't abandon, you know, it is an area where you're weak, so you may have to continue to rehab this ongoing. Is that an experience you're you're finding? Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a consistent theme through my, you know, sixteen years of being a practitioner, Jared. Um, the absence of pain is great, but that does not equate to the the rehabilitation being complete. They're, they're two different animals. Um, an example being a bone stress injury. Uh, you could have a high grade bone stress injury, and within three or four or five days of deloading it, i.e., not running, um you might not feel pain, but if you return to pain after a week of being off it, you're, you're not, you're not ready. You need probably another three, four, five, six, up to 12 weeks, depending on the side of bone stress. So you're spot on. And, and that last point you made, Jared's a great one. And that is that certain conditions, um, require ongoing rehab while anyone has the ambition of staying active. So something like that would be an, a persistent Achilles tendinopathy, something, you know, a, a sore Achilles that's lasted for more than 12 weeks. Um, the athlete's likely to need to do tendon-related rehab and specifically like calf-related strength work while ever they have the ambitions to continue competing and running. And, and I appreciate that sometimes the juice isn't always worth the squeeze. So, you know, the tax that people have to pay to play, sometimes they can't fit it in with their, their time and we all know triathlon training is demanding. So then it's the job of the practitioner to have realistic expect, uh, conversations with the, the athlete and, well, this is the work that you would need to do to get a result. Can you fit it in? Do you have the mojo to fit it in? And if not, you know, what do you want to do? So, yeah, once again, communication so key and you're right. Spot on, Jared. I want to focus on uh, the lower leg specifically and keep it soft tissue based. And I want to know your theory um, around something like the calf. The calf itself has, um, from some practitioners, it is the, the golden muscle to, to try and keep strong, keep active. It's the, the key ingredient to rehab. Uh, I know you've posted about it a bit and it's something that I feel like has a bit of misconception around it. Um, how often should you do calf races? You know, how important are they in, in prehab and rehab? Um, uh, soft tissue around the calf muscle, muscles, um, the tendons around uh, the Achilles, um, very common areas of injury for endurance athletes, for runners. Um, what are your personal uh, principles around that area and what should endurance athletes know um, about that? Yeah, it's a great question, Geordie. And I'd agree with you. There seems to be a bit of a growing awareness and conversation around the importance of calves, which uh, the role of the calf or calf calves, um, which is, I think, a good thing to see happening. Um, I have a little, you know, maxim that I share with the athlete, and that is, below the knee is the key. So if you look at the the force, if you look at the contribution to force to propulsion when we run, fifty percent of it comes from below the knee. So it reasons that if someone's weak there they're they're losing force and ultimately it's pushing harder on the ground that makes us faster um so you immediately get the athlete's ear when we 
you know, educate them on that. You know, no one wants to have a handicap or a, uh, a handbrake onto their performance just because they're weak in the calves. Um, and, you know, we, we, we all talk, and I wrote a book 10 years ago about the importance of some hip stability and, and things, but I really need to do another one to talk about how important below the knee is now. Um, up around the hips, for example, the, the lateral hip, uh, like the gluteal muscles there, they'll work up to three and a half times uh, body weight equivalents uh, per stride, whereas something like the soleus, the deep calf's eight times body weight. Uh, and that's whether we're running a three-minute K or a six-minute K. It is generating huge force every step. The, the gastroc, which sits on top, it's going to generate about three and a half times our body weight. Um, so the hardest working muscle in our running body and the second biggest muscle in our body happens to be the soleus. And the irony, and this is where it gets really interesting, is that we all lose strength as we age. And past 30 years of age, where we lose strength the most is the calf. So the plantar flexors take the biggest hit. So you've got this, you've got this uh, often mismatch of uh, masters athletes maturing, getting weaker and weaker, trying to do their Ironman, achieve their Ironman goals, and you know long course triathlon goals or whatever it may be. And their common injuries will, as a result of their calf weakness, be Achilles tendinopathy issues or Achilles issues, plantar fascia issues, fasciitis, and calf strains. So it's quite predictable. So, so is there a routine you recommend to counter that, and, and what should be people what should people be taking on? Yeah, great. And obviously, it can always be individualized, but in just like general terms, something's always better than nothing. So, there's gold standard ways to get it done, and then there's just practical ways for people to get it done that can fit into their 15, 20 hour training weeks, getting ready for an Ironman or whatever it may be. So, um, so some simple sort of guidelines, Jared and Geordie would be. Um, you know, some good quality single leg standing calf raises. Like the, the mistake people make here, and I've made it myself in, in years gone by where people just rush the reps. So we're talking about standing hand on a wall, single leg calf raises. Um, you'll ask someone how many can you do and they'll say 30, 35, 40, 50, and you immediately know that the, the technique's going to be, be poor. So as a sports physio, we actually take a lot from the Australian ballet because they've got a world-leading program on on feet, lower limb, ankle injuries, for example. Uh, and there's very few athletes on the planet that have better calves than, than ballet dancers, right? So, so Sue Mays at the Australian Ballet has really taught a lot of the Australian physiotherapy sports-based scene that form really matters. So we'll talk about putting a metronome on that's one second up, one second down, driving through the big toe, making sure people don't roll out, getting maximum heel lift, and then monitoring that they don't rock their body to generate the momentum to get up and that they don't bend their knee. And when you give those cues to someone and you put the metronome on, beep, 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 one, one, two, two, you'll get even really high-performing athletes that are bombing out at somewhere between 10 and 15 reps. Um, and here's the Australian Ballet not letting people hop or jump if they can't do 25 of those with excellence so so that's a little tip and then you can take it like something at home you, people could do how often you know as often as they can minimum three times a week to probably have an effect um, but then you've got gym based stuff and, and there's no doubt about it people can make much bigger gains with their strength um, via gym access so that would be heavy single leg standing calf work and heavy seated uh, calf work say in a smith rack um, single legs important because it 
you know, you can you can miss a weakness on one side doing double leg work. Um, and it needs to be heavy, like actually really heavy. So the athlete should be bombing out around eight to 10 reps and trying for something like three or four sets. Is there any way to be really specific and say, say your calf in, in terms of the gastroc is quite strong, but the soleus is weak? Is there any way of actually being a little bit more detailed about specific exercises that are going to help the soleus? And seemingly that's taking the biggest load um, eight times compared to three and a half times. Um, yeah. Is there any differentiation you can make there? Yeah, on assessment, uh, Jared, yeah, you, you know, you. you it gets a bit complicated because they still both like synergistically work together to produce, you know, uh, a heel getting off the ground. So, but in, in simple terms, an assessment you could do in a gym setting or a clinical setting is in a Smith rack, you know, and you, some clinics have access to this. We've got the force plates here, but you can put a force plate under someone um, in a Smith rack and get them to do a maximum isometric push up into the, the bar in a seated position. So that gives a, a pretty robust look at someone's ability to generate force out of their soleus. Um, and then you could do a seated eight rep max test. So, you know, Jared, let's see how many kilos you can push out for eight reps in this seated position. So that's, and then you do that in a standing position, which is more your calf, your gastroc, sorry. So the seated's more the soleus in simple terms and the standing based assessment is going to give you a bit more intel about your gastrocs. But you normally see people just, down-regulated in both of those um, as opposed to one's really weak and the other's not? Good question, though. Just some unbelievable tips in there. And I think you can't underestimate uh, how these little things can make a huge difference, especially for the age group athlete. And you gave two key examples there. One is that um, as we age, we get weaker. And so it just becomes more and more important to do these things. And secondly, um, what you said was brilliant. I thought that you can have the gold standard, which is great, but also something is better than nothing. And a little tip like what you just gave about doing some high quality standing calf raises, making sure that you're doing them with good form, even just adding a little of the, bit of that per week for each age group athlete would be so beneficial because one is better than zero. And if they just did it once a week, that's probably going to make a big difference. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I think that's just that grace-based approach, isn't it? Like no one likes to let anyone down, whether it's a coach or a therapist. And I think we've just got to be so mindful. I, I'm passionate about this as a physio that it's got to be realistic. Like I get really frustrated when I see people with 16, with exercise programs, 16 items long. I'm just like, like what, how, does that, how does that happen? You know, uh, there's actually studies that show any more than three exercises from a home program, the compliance rate flo- falls through the floor. So it's kind of incumbent on the therapist to go, right, what are the two or three big things that need to really be addressed here? And then, and that work's got to be progressive. So I liken it, Geordie, to a batch of fresh fruit. You know, here's your fresh, your first batch. Go and suck the ingredients out of that and then we'll give you the next batch. So they know that it's going to be progressive and scaling up um, and it's going to change. Like people should not be doing the same stuff 16 weeks into a rehab program they did on week one. Something's seriously gone wrong if that's the case. I love that and um, I think when you think think about things progressively uh, as an athlete and knowing that there's an end goal, it's the exact same principles of, of how a training program works and they're not going to try and do the best training program possible in the first week. And we've been quite specific here on the lower leg and that's, um, that's really hard to, uh, on a podcast, uh, give specific advice because every case is going to be a little bit different. But I would love to know, do you have any other 
go-to recommendations of exercises, whether they're in rehab or just a weekly routine? Is there one or two other ones um, that you think would give an athlete the best bang for their buck if they if they just wanted to add something else in? So if we look at uh the known risk factors with our biomechanics that correlate with running injuries, there's actually only two variables of how we run that actually are correlated. So that's overstriding, which is a coaching type of process generally to help people with. And the other one is hip dip. So, you know, we've all seen it. Obviously the pelvis collapsing under fatigue as we run. Um, And so um, it's interesting. The research doesn't actually... show that if you strengthen people's hips up, that hip dip actually changes. But I think that's just a limitation in research as opposed to, you know, how could it not? If you strengthen up, you would expect that to reduce. So I'm, I'm big on trying to help people, Geordie, um, have the best pelvic control they can still have. And, and, and one of them, every muscle group around the hip matters for that. So the extensors, the, the glute max, the, the AD ductors on the inside of the groin, the hip flexors, and then the hip AB ductors on the outside. Um, but to, you know, to, to sort of answer the question, one thing that I think every endurance athlete, triathlete, runner should do is some side work. Anything on their side, on an athlete's side, side bridging, is best bang for buck in terms of hitting those hip abductors. So, you know, there's exercises at things like clams, you know, laying on your side, lifting the leg up and down. There's been research that research done that look look at looks at you know the uh, continuum of muscle activation per exercise and something like a clam is so low down on the list for activation people may as well not even do it so for many years i've said kill the clam don't do it (laughs) don't do it but just get people on their side do some side planks um as a minimum and you know and how do you get people to do that I've gone away from being really prescriptive and saying, right, you need to hold it for 45 seconds. And now I've just sort of shifted in recent times to, Geordie, use your three best efforts. Give it all you got three times. It doesn't matter if you're failing towards that third set. That's what we expect. But you've got to go to that point of lactate to get the best adaptation. And I think people really enjoy that because they see it like a challenge. They want to come back and tell you how long they're going for. If you tell them 45 seconds, they get there and maybe there's another 30 seconds in them. So you know, do some side planks uh, three times to absolute fatigue or twice or once. Something's better than nothing. Oh, that's great. And, uh, you know, some of the advice you're giving here in terms of the rehab and, and keeping yourself on the park, as we as we call it, um, able to get to the finish line, uh, not only in your rehab, but in the actual race to start the race is, is really what we're trying to trying to help all of the, the listeners out there. Um, and let's face it, everybody at some point in time is going to be faced with the fact that they've injured themselves, um, whether it's a running injury or a bike injury or a swimming injury. And that's sort of where I want to go next is, you know, specifically on the bike, we've talked a little bit about running and the load that the, the running stride pattern generates through the body. What things are you seeing on the bike? And then we'll get to the, the swim later, but just quickly, what what things are you seeing as the most predominantly obvious injuries that you're having to face with bike riders? Yeah, it's a great question, Jared. Uh, I mean, apart from trauma, which unfortunately, you know, can be part of the, the triathlete cyclist athletic journey coming off the bike and breaking, breaking bones and all the bits that go with that. Um, back pain obviously is quite common and I know you both will have encountered that with athletes prepping for the long course triathlon events uh so lower back pain and kneecap pain so 
sore knee uh, is very can be quite common. And probably the third thing would be the hamstring tendon, that proximal hamstring tendon as it you know comes off the the sitting bone. Uh, you, you often see long course triathletes, particularly masters age, um, sometimes battling with that, and that's um, partially got to do with the time on on a time trial bike and there's greater compression on that tendon, which can aggravate it. So that'd probably be the big three, back pain, kneecap pain, and proximal hamstring tendon tendinopathy. And then I know it's tough um, and we, we do put our guests under pressure with this because we're always just going, our, our big goal for endurance athletes is getting to the start line and, and getting to the start line in a position to race. And half of that is the training, you know, being confident in the training you've done so you can perform, but the other half is just getting there healthy. And that is such a challenge for the age group athletes. So we are always just imploring a guest like you, just um, if you can give any little tip of, again, um, what do we do about that? So they're the three common injuries. Um, what, what could we just start doing? Um, even if it's a simple tip that could help someone increase their chance of getting to the start line healthy. Yeah, so not speci- uh, not specifically speaking of those three injuries, Jordan. Just in general terms, for sure. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I hesitate to say it because it's almost so cliched, but um, I'm exactly. I, I share the same belief. Like, get to the start line. I, I mean, the nature of high performance sport is a bit different. Like the very nature and definition, they have to push the boundaries, and sometimes they're going to get it wrong and hopefully most of the time they'll get it right. But when it comes to age group participation, obviously there's some very competitive and motivated age group athletes, but I think um, probably the thing that we're all clear on the fact that running is associated with more injuries than cycling and swimming. So if we sort of speak to running, um, the thing I sort of see probably – been a greater risk factor than it needs to be for a lot of age group triathletes is is the intensity running um there is just such a greater risk of injury whether it's bone or tendon aggravation with the speed work um so of course we need some intensity running in there um but depending on someone's background uh, with injury profile uh, their goals uh you know it's obviously going to depend on what that, that that programming should look like and of course it we can all always get it wrong. But for example, like a bone injury, a runner could tolerate going from 50 kilometers a week of running to 100 kilometers a week quite easily with, with only a doubling of risk of bone injury if the, if the pace was aerobic and steady. But when that runner then increases the intensity, the, the risk of a bone injury is actually exponential. So that's probably my big tip is just be very mindful of 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 the how and the when of the intensity running. And that's where you need a good coach, right? Because by yourself, you're going to stuff it up most of the time, me included. <laughs> and I guess, I know I know it's hard to answer, but I guess with um, cycling and swimming, um, when the risk factor does seem relatively lower, but you're still getting some sort of um, niggles coming through, like joint pain in the shoulder or back pain, like you mentioned, or knee pain. Um, yeah, what, what do we do there to, to help prevent that when um, that's where we're trying to get more of our intensity normally? Yeah, great question. I mean, if, if we jump in the pool for a moment, um, you know, your common swimming conditions are obviously shoulder-related by and large um, and typically tendon aggravation, so a tendinopathy of, of the rotator cuff. Um, so there can be simple tips that the athlete can do. You want to keep them in the water. Um, I know the Australian swim team have pretty much at high performance and has banned the kickboard uh, just because there's a, 
out of range, great load of, of, of compression on the shoulder. So a simple tip would be, yeah, put your fins on, but don't use a kickboard. Put your arms by your side. Um, for a, a swimmer that has a sore shoulder, it's always worth looking at the hips. They're often quite tight in the hips, and that's going to affect their shoulder. They often get weakness around the cuff, so some some appropriate specific conditioning exercises that can get done are key. Um, and funny enough, it's always worth looking at the, uh, the 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 ankles of the athlete. Oftentimes, there's been a history of ankle sprains um, or some sort of ankle pathology, and and therefore they're not getting the propulsion from their kick. So it actually creates a bit of overload in their shoulder. So it's always worth having a good holistic look at at a sore shoulder, not just the local area. And then on the bike, once again, you want to keep 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 them uh, on the bike as much as possible. So um, back pain, unless it's so acute that people can't put their shoes and socks on or get their bike shoes on, you know, keep them on the bike. Um, the tissue isn't normally the issue. Uh, it'll calm down. It will get sensitized. So education to let them know that the pain that they feel with their back doesn't equate to tissue damage might be really key. Um, we use the analogy that if you've got soreness from something that's not high risk, like a high risk bone injury, then when you feel a higher load of so- rate of soreness, it doesn't mean that you've damaged that area anymore. It's sensitized it. And the, the equivalent to that, the analogy is like a sunburnt shoulder at the beach. You get in the hot water in the shower, you have a hot shower and it feels yuck, but the skin's no worse. It's not more damaged. It's just irritated. Hmm. So if, when an athlete understands this sensitization versus tissue damage paradigm, they're often more empowered and less fear avoidant to get in the water and swim. They're, they're, they're more confident to get on the bike. So it comes back to a lot of education. It's a really good tip there because, uh, look, I know um, a lot of people will think, oh, my back hurts. I need to rest this. And and actually, I feel it's the opposite. You, you actually need to get some more blood flow and um, and keep, keep movement um, so that you, you, you know, I've experienced this myself. You know, the more I rest, the worse my back pain seems to be, and that, that's just my experience. And I'm sure from yours, from an actual, a medical point of view, would probably nearly back that up. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny uh, we're talking about sore backs. I um I had a really sore thoracic spine yesterday in the pool at the swim squad. It's an irritated disc from holding my sixteen uh, month old daughter out in front, and it was stabbing pain. And I knew what it was, and I started to get in a little bit of like panic because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to keep me up for a while. And then I'm like, hold on, put your fins on, put your snorkel on, go to the back of the lane. The pain isn't equating to any further tissue damage. It's aggravated. And I got the rest of the session done and it was pretty slow, but I could still turn the arms over. I felt quite quite accomplished. Uh, came to work, did my normal work day. I'm back here tomorrow and it's, it's much more settled. But I, I could, could only... Uh, do that because I've had the lived experience to know that when my back's sore, it doesn't mean I should stop exactly like you said. Um, so, uh, yeah. And we actually know that running for, for back pain is generally a great thing unless they're so flared up that they do need to rest, to have a couple of days to calm the farm and then get back out there. You've done a great job of answering our pretty tough questions and actually turned them into <laughs> some pretty specific advice, which is a really good effort because we um, we do ask some tough ones. And I know we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I do want to just finish off and talk about your other area of expertise. And you were a high-performing and still are a high-performing triathlete yourself, um, some great accolades to your name as a triathlete. Plus, you've got your own podcast show where you've interviewed some great guests over the journey. So I want to quickly finish off and just ask, the sport of triathlon, you're so involved in it. What does it mean to you? Well, it's kind of been 
in many ways, my life. Like uh, I did it as a kid. That's the first thing that I fell in love with through my junior sport, apart from, you know, soccer, which sort of every kid, male boy often, you know, boy does uh, as they grow up. But it's the first thing that I really was passionate about. And um, and I remember thinking the only thing I ever want to do is triathlon. And if that's not an option, then I'll do physio because I was always at the physio. <laughs> <laughs> so I've combined them. So what does triathlon mean to me? Um, professionally, it's it's where I like to to spend my time working. Um, it's just, I think it's just a nice parallel to life. Like uh, there's the ups and downs. You have your wins along the way, have plenty of down times, but it's just that achievement of whatever the goal may be to the athlete. It's it's a fantastic sport. There's so many different versions now, whether it's off road, long course, short course, sprint, you know, aqua bike. So yeah, it, it, I don't know if I've answered it well, but that's what it means to me, Geordie. That's perfect, and you've you've interviewed a wide range of guests in in a wide range of elite sports, but a lot in triathlon, cycling, running. Again, tough question to finish off with, but who is your all time favorite guest, and why? What did they teach you? <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> that's that's brutal. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, um, es- especially when you've done three hundred and fifty <laughs> podcasts. Um, yeah, that's, I'm intrigued because. Is there someone who's taught you the most that you've gone, wow, that's just being gold? Well, um, I mean, it's biased by what I do. Um, and it's a cliche to say that it, we do though, right? Because I know you would as well with what, what you do with Trivella. You learn something from everyone. And that's a, Absolutely. a is there any greater currency in life than learning? Like it's such a thrill, isn't it? Um, so... But because of what I do as a sports physio, I'm always trying to improve my skill set, knowledge, um, and application of that. And my own personal injury history has been a lot of, unfortunately, bone stress. So someone that I just have a great admiration for is Stuart Warden, Professor Stuart Warden, who's based out of Indiana University, used to be at the Australian Institute of Sport. His research is really informative. We had Stuart on uh circa 200 episode 283 talking about one of the uh narratives he'd written in a in a a journal article around preventing bone stress injuries so i really enjoyed that that was really holistic um conversation so i know i can only give one so i'll I'll say i've learned heaps through stuart warden i like that if you were going to rattle off a couple more that that were your favorites (laughs) are in the mix Um. yeah i mean uh sentimentally uh i grew up as a junior triathlete in the 1990s when, you know, Geordie, you wouldn't have been born, but obviously uh, dad, Jared's right across this, you know, the, the F1 series here in Australia with the St. George to his blue, et cetera. And, and the only person I wanted to be in life was Brad Bevan. Um, you know, he, he was, I had cutouts of him in my living room. I had posters, I had all the books. He was laminated on my books. Although I did put Greg Welsh on there on my English book in year nine when he won the Ironman, uh, 1994. But, um, and so, yeah, Brad came in uh, very early in the piece, maybe episode 20, six, seven years ago. And and, and I remember the night before barely sleeping because <laughs> I'm like, you know, and you'd be the same. You want to respect your guests' yeah. time and everything else. And you you want to genuinely get the most out of the opportunity to to help people. And I felt a real responsibility. Um, and it was just a lot of fun. And off the back of that, you know, we've, you know, we've sort of become um, – you know, friends. So if you had told me as a 10 year old kid getting into triathlon, just, you know, worshiping the feet of Brad Bevan, that 
you know, as a 42 year old now, I know him as a friend and, you know, once again, is there anything richer in life than learning and good relationships? So that'd be probably one of my sentimental favorites, mate. That's a great way to finish. Uh, well, we appreciate your time and coming on. Uh, we know you've got to go and uh, we'll definitely look to have you on again because um, we've got more and more questions we'd want to ask you and, and, and we only scratched the surface today. And like I said, you uh, do a great job of scratching that surface and then giving some real gold tips to people, which is what this is all about. We're just trying to give the tips that the tiny ones that can make a difference. And that's all it takes is you might pick up one thing here or there that really makes a difference to your training and your racing. So Brad, thanks so much for joining us on this episode. Uh, Jordy and Jared, thanks so much for the opportunity and uh, yeah, more than happy to pop on anytime. Appreciate it, mate. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.